Ah, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm really, really enjoying this Killers of the Flower Moon discourse. Oh boy, 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 it's, it's getting a bit tasty. And you Scorsese fanboys need to back up. In the words, Public Enemies Chuck D. In the noise. Two hundred and fiftieth time from the five EPN. I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is Waskip. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope all is well. Hope all is blessed in the circumstances. Yeah, I just really clock. I just actually clocked it was two fifty minutes before I was recording. I was just like, oh, well, two fifty. Damn, didn't even. Oh, there you go. Here's what it is. But um, yeah, man, happy 250, 250th episode uh, officially. Obviously, there's plenty more episodes if you count the long reads, the 30 questions, etc., etc. But you know, actual episodes, including interviews, 250. So, yay! Confetti, confetti, confetti. All right. So let me talk. Let me talk to you quickly about this, like Kinders of the Flower Moon shit, right? So, if I ain't seen, uh, ain't heard of it, basically, it's um, a film. Uh, by Martin Scorsese um, and it's basically a story about uh, I think it's based on a true story or based on a book um, but anyway yeah one of those um, on the Osage people which is a uh, native uh, American um, I forget um, the actual wording for it but I'm saying Native American just for the um, lack of education and uh, yeah and but there's white people in it um, things happen, a lot of bloodshed, etc., etc. Right? Um, so you know, that's a loose way of telling the story, but you know, look it up for yourself, right? But anyway, it doesn't really matter what the story is about, quote unquote, specifically. Um, it's more about the fact that Martin Scorsese is directing it, and you know, there may be Osage people being represented in the film, right? Um, and there's people behind the scenes that are Osage working on it. Um, but there's been a couple of, you know, just critiques about the film as a whole, right? Um, it may be a great film, maybe the best film ever, right? But the issue is, is that, again, we have a white guy helming a film about a marginalised peoples. And it's a story that should be through the lens of marginalised peoples, but it ain't. It isn't. Um, it's the same with The Colour Purple, which I haven't seen from uh, Spielberg from back in the day, but, you know, I've heard it's good, right? It's the same issue with that. And it's the same with the worst example of it, which is Green Book. Fuck Green Book. I, I, I said fuck Green Book nearly 250 episodes ago. <laughs> very, very early on um, in the what's good uh, timeline uh, of my vendetta against uh, Green Book. And um, actually, my subsequent... Uh, Ditching of award season in general um, after Green Book. I was just like, fuck this, this, this sucks. It all sucks. Um, but yeah, obviously, um, from the looks of it, Killers of the Flower Moon isn't Green Book bad, okay? But it's still Green Book-esque because you can't escape it. 
It's directed by a white guy, and he's not Osage, and that's just it. That's it. That's the problem. That's all it is. It could be the greatest film ever made objectively, right? But there's still an issue of representation here, and that's what we're talking about, right? And that's what Scorsese fan- fanboys are apparently getting all up in arms about, of just a minor bit of criticism of um, a couple of um, native um, uh, native-represented uh, peoples talking talking on the talking on the film in that way of just saying you're saying it's very it's very uncomfortable to watch as an osage and all that stuff it's like and now and now you know white film school fanboys are getting on their getting on their tits and it's just like who the fuck are you <laughs> get fucked um but that, that's the issue the film um uh, as one of the um people uh, one of the uh osage uh, uh peoples who was um part of the film um he said you know the film wasn't made for us it was made for you know the mainstream white audience and that's fact, that's fact, that's what it is, um, so, yeah, man, it is what it is, I'm, I haven't seen the film, I probably won't, to be honest, um, I don't really care about those kind of films, um, but, you know, it is what it is, it's made in the wrong lens, but that's just how the US Hollywood film industry is, they don't make it through the actual peoples who should be represented, they don't represent it through their lens, and that's the issue, Gaze and lenses are very, very, very important. Is why the director is probably the most helmed position in film, is it not? Are we are we are we diminishing directors now, right? You know what I mean? So it is what it is. Um no diss to the film. It's probably a great film, I'm sure it is. Um I've heard good things about it. Um it's not my cup of tea, but you know, when people that are Osage and, and are Native American, when they're critiquing it, saying it makes me uncomfortable that this film is here, um, and, you know, they can be happy it exists in some fashion, but also have the critique of, you know, maybe it should have been done through an Osage lens, maybe, no wild concept, right? Um, people are getting on their tit about it, it just doesn't make sense, it's illogical. But anyway, let's get into the show, um, little just mini rant there. Um, yeah, episode 250, what are we doing? Uh, we're doing a long read, and we're doing two, um, I'm going to say two politics segments. Um, one of them makes me kind of, uh, kind of makes me feel uncomfortable by saying politics, but um, I've just put it in there just for the sake of, I don't know, uh, just for the sake of it. Um, but yeah. We have two politics and also going to do a long read uh, on the back end as well. Uh, so with that said, formalities for, for before we begin, email, socials, writing, all that in the full show notes as well as the music and other podcasts under the 5 EPN. Did Black Twang on DITD this week. Really enjoyed that. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed listening to Black Twang, uh, the original hip-hop geezer. So if you want to go spin that as part of, part of the Digging in Digits uh, UK BHM series. Go for it. And with that said, let the beat drop. Let's get into the show. In a week where Labour win two more by-elections in formerly uh, Tory constituencies, uh, World Cup winner but Sir Bobby Charlton dies age 86. Over 100,000 people march through London for Palestine. Uh, Egypt's Gaza border crossing reopens. And thousands of people gather Trafalgar Square to demand the release of mass hostages. Um, so, yeah, plenty of marches abound and plenty of things going on on the day-to-day 
um, obviously in Gaza, West Bank, and the oppressive state of Israel. But we're going to stick it to the UK for these two uh, politics segments, um, because I just find them crazy. Um, I actually could have also talked about another thing uh, which I learned uh, last late last night, um, where it was just a f- thread on Twitter, and I was just... I just didn't know how to even take it in because I'll, I'll just read the I'll just read it quickly. Um, shout out to Ryan who I sent it to um, last <laughs> last night, uh, with just a thousand question marks on it uh, captioned. Um, the Royal Navy is ending its century-old tradition of having Chinese servants on warships amid fears that they could be forced to spy for Beijing. Hundreds of Chinese laundrymen have worked on Britain's warships since 1930. Huh? Absolutely absurd. And there's also a bit here uh, where Nepalese Gurkhas, if I'm saying that right, uh, will replace them due to fears that Beijing could threaten the service families in China to make those on board ship, uh, ships pass on Royal Navy secrets. The Sun has reported. Uh, don't know about the Sun reporting on ship, but you know what I mean. Um, but yeah. What? <laughs> Why is the ending its century-old tradition of having Chinese uh, laundrymen, Chinese servants on warships. How has this been a thing all this time? Absolutely outstanding. Can't believe it. But anyway, that's not what we're going to talk about. That's just a thing that I saw. Um, But here's the actual story we're going to be talking about. The first one is a secret report on UK modern slavery. And you you wonder why I uh, put this under politics, um, albeit probably shouldn't have uh but yeah this is called a it's a it's a secret report a secret report on uk modern slavery the home office didn't want you to see um very um a very baity uh headline there from the independent uh but we'll take it um and this is written by emiliano Molino and matthew chapman um so let's jump right in because yeah modern slavery still the thing uh, best believe that uh right british farmers have been accused of modern slavery following allegations of widespread exploitation of seasonal workers, which the Home Office tried to prevent from being made public. Investigation by the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, TBIJ, TBIDGE, um, and the Independent has uncovered evidence suggesting that workers who had travelled thousands of miles to fill gaps in the UK's agricultural workforce were publicly humiliated, not paid for the hours they worked, and forced to live in substandard conditions. Sounds like slavery, modern slavery to me. Sounds like slavery to me. Um, the Home Office gathered the evidence in secret reports in 2021 and 22, uh, which were trying to prevent from being made public, and were only released after a five-month battle. The alleged mistreatment of migrants on seasonal workers' visas is so stark that the government could be in breach of its obligations over the prevention of modern slavery, it has been claimed. The investigation is found, and there's some bullet points here, Ukrainian woman working as a fruit picker hired by a government-registered recruiter claims she was left quote-unquote starving after being confined to her caravan without access to medical assistance or food for 11 days when she caught COVID-19. Um, the worker says a collie pulled out their own tooth after being denied dental care by the farm. And the last bullet point, a Moldovan worker was allegedly only allowed one 15-minute break and was prevented from going to the toilet, drinking water, or having any food until she hit her targets. Outstanding. Uh, The the stories emerged after Tbidge obtained 19 inspection reports produced by the Home Office into farms that employ individuals on seasonal workers' visas. 
The documents released after a successful appeal by Tbidge summarise the interviews and findings of the inspectors who visited the sites. The names of the farms were redacted by Home Office for commercial reasons. A senior conservative who sits on all-party parliamentary group on modern slavery and trafficking has uh, said the findings showed modern slavery was everywhere and the Home Office must take action where abuse is identified. Tory MP Jackie Law Price told the Independent quote, What this shows that modern slavery is everywhere and migrant workers are as likely to be subject to it whether, whether they come here illegally, legally or illegally. Um, it's very clear that seasonal workers are a vulnerable group and it is incumbent on the Home Office to ensure those assessment procedures are robust and that action is taken whilst, when abuse is identified, unquote. The UK government launched the seasonal worker scheme in 2019 to address labour shortages which is expected to be exacerbated by the exit. Uh, initial 2,500 2, 2, visas were available at its launch this year. As many as 55,000 are expected to be issued uh, to people from countries including Kyrgyzstan, South Africa and Ukraine to work on hundreds of farms across the UK. The reports revealed that workers involved in the scheme have faced far greater levels of exploitation than the government had previously admitted. According to T-Bidge uh, analysis of the inspection reports, nearly half of the workers interviewed raised uh, welfare issues, including racism, wage theft, and threats of being sent back home if they failed to hit their targets. At one farm, where more than a dozen people complained about being mistreated, a manager was reported to have shouted, quote, I am a pure-blooded English woman. I will stay to live here, and you will go back to your poor countries, unquote. The allegations of abuse raised in Home Office reports covered uh, working hours and living conditions, but none have been investigated, according to a report by the Independent Chief Inspector of Borders and Immigration. Farming Minister Mark Spencer even claimed last month that the people on the scheme are, quote, very well looked after, unquote, and that employers, quote, make sure that their welfare needs are met, unquote. Human rights lawyers said the failure to investigate could mean that the government has breached its obligation to prevent forced labour under the European Convention on Human Rights. Jamila Duncan-Bosu, a solicitor with the Anti-Trafficking and Labour Exploitation Unit, a charity bringing claims on behalf of modern slavery victims, accused the government of, quote, state-sponsored exploitation, unquote. Unpaid hours are common. According to Home Office reports, in nearly two-thirds of farms inspected, workers said they were not always paid for the hours they had worked or travelled or had faced excessive deductions beyond the maximum allowed by law. Um, unlike other work visas, where employers sponsor uh, workers' residency permits, permits sorry, uh, the agricultural seasonal worker visa relies on six licensed recruiters who often decide which farms will work in and whether they can be transferred to other farms if they face problems or work or if work dries up. The recruiters are also required to ensure that participants are properly paid, treated fairly and live in hygienic accommodation. Despite the numerous issues raised with the inspectors, no government licensed scheme recruiter has lost its license or been sanctioned for failing to meet these standards. Oh, it's interesting. Just keep their jobs, just keep doing their things. Meanwhile, the findings also reveal unlawful recruitment fees are more common than previously thought. With workers from six countries saying they had paid recruiters as much as 7,500 quid for jobs in the UK, the charging of such fees is illegal. Lib Dem peer Jeremy Purvis, who is also a member of the modern slavery APPG, 
um, said the revelations were, quote, horrifying. Uh, he added the government's Illegal Migration Act would make the problem worse by preventing those who come to the UK via legal routes uh, from accessing modern slavery protections. He said ministers had, quote, completely cut the legs off any ability for Britain to be moral leaders in the world on this. Oh, on this? Moral leaders on this? Moral leaders on a lot of things <laughs> in recent years, trust me on that. Uh, modern slavery is an ongoing issue in the UK, and Britain is inevitably a draw for many people, as other rich nations are, he told the Independent. But I believe very strongly that it gives an, us an increased moral responsibility to ensure people who are here legitimately to work are not, exploit, uh, not exploited, unquote. In response to T-Bidge findings, uh, the Home Office said that, quote, each year improvements have been made to stop exploitation and clamp down on poor working conditions. <laughs> it added that a new team had been established to safeguard workers' rights by, quote, improving training and processes for compliance inspectors and creating clear published guidance for a bus action uh, for scheme uh, operators where workers are at risk of exploitation, unquote. Well, the easy, th there's an easy answer to all that, right? All that um, jargon they just gave in the end there. Release the report and not fucking hide it, <laughs> and not have the, and not have T Bidge and uh, and fucking the Independent uh, release uh, expose your work, expose your findings that were you know nearly two years old now. That's just shit. Um, and yeah, just uh, another example of how tragically bad the Home Office is. I feel like of all. Um, of all departments in the government, the Home Office is just just the worst at this point, right? They, I mean, they all suck. They're all under a 13-year Tory government that have no ideas left and uh, just doing shit just for the fucking sake of it at this point and just, uh, you know, just shitting on everybody for the sake of it. Um, but, yeah, just everything... Every time I see the Home Office in the news, it's for something negative. I've never seen a positive Home Office uh, news item uh, probably ever, to be honest, but uh, definitely in the Bre Braverman and uh, uh, Pretty Patel years, shit. I mean, fucking Theresa May as well, like fucking Windrush scandal. Who be who started that shit? Theresa May before she even became prime minister. That even that tells you even five six years ago that the Tory government was just garbage. The fact that they made her prime minister of all fucking people is just absurd. But hey, here we are. Here we are. Still waiting on the general election, so absolutely outstanding. But we ain't done there, ladies and gentlemen. We have another one. We have another one. Okay, so. Here's a fun one for you. Uh, I literally found this uh, yesterday. <laughs> was it yesterday? So, yeah, Monday the 23rd. So I found this yesterday. And uh, I was just like, oh joy. I wasn't actually thinking of um, doing it for the pod. But I was um, trying to actually look for um, look for pieces. And um, I'm heading out to um, London um, on Wednesday, the day I usually record. So I had a day to actually look it all up. So I was like, oh. Well, fuck it. Let's just do this one, cause it's 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 great. Um, so this is uh, via the Guardian, uh, written by Kieran Stacey, correspondent, uh, and it's called UK officials get this: use AI to decide on issues from benefits to <laughs> marriage licenses. 
So, ready news and AI, guys. Government already fully utilising it. Gotta love it, right? Absolutely love it. Right. Let's jump right in, because, yes, it's great. Government officials are using AI and complex algorithms to help decide everything from who gets benefits to who should have their marriage license approved according to a Ghani investigation. The findings shed light on the haphazard and often uncontrolled way that cutting-edge technology is being used across Whitehall. Civil servants in at least eight Whitehall departments and a handful of police forces are using AI in a range of areas, but especially when it comes to helping them make decisions over welfare, immigration and criminal justice investigation shows. Government, uh, the Guardian has uncovered evidence that some of the tools being used have the potential to produce discriminatory results, such as oh, more bullet points, there you go, an algorithm used by the DWP, the Department for Work and Pensions, uh, which an MP believes mistakenly led to dozens of people having their benefits removed. Oh, love it. Absolutely great. Uh, an, a, a facial uh, recognition tool by the Metropolitan Police has been found to make more mistakes recognising black faces than white ones under certain settings. You, c- I could have told you that. Um, I've, I've, have these people not read any work on how AI um, is just inherently discriminatory? Like, <laughs> I just, I don't, I just, I, I'm, 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 I'm baffled by this whole thing. Anyway. An algorithm, uh, some last bullet point, an algorithm uh, used by the Home Office to flag up sham marriages, uh, which has been disproportionately selecting people of certain nationalities. Absolutely outstanding. An artificial intelligence is typically trained on a large data set and then analyses uh, anal- analyzes that data in which in ways which even those who have developed the tools sometimes do not fully understand. Uh, if the data shows evidence of discrimination, experts warn, the AI tool is likely to lead to discriminatory outcomes as well. Rishi Sunak uh, recently spoke in glowing terms about how AI could transform uh, public services, quote, had to be a quote, from saving teachers hundreds of hours' time uh, spent lesson planning to helping NHS patients get quicker diagnoses and more accurate tests. Do you like my Rishi Sunak uh, impression? I'm getting there. It's getting there. Uh, unquote, anyway. Uh, but its use in the public sector has previously proved controversial, such as in the Netherlands, where tax authorities use it to spot potential childcare benefits fraud, but were fined 3.7 million euros after repeatedly getting decisions wrong and plunging tens of thousands of families into poverty. Experts worry about repeats of that scandal in the UK, warning that British officials are using poorly understood algorithms to make life-changing decisions without the people affected by those decisions even knowing about it. Many are concerned about the abolition uh, this, earlier this year of an independent government advisory board which held public sector bodies accountable for how they used AI. <laughs> you can't write this, you know what I mean? It's, just, it's, so, it's so obviously fucking terrible that... Oh yeah, let me... Let me let's, there's nothing wrong here. Just um, you know, just the abolition of an independent gov- government advisory board. Not even you know, ma- just advising. Not even making any you know um, uh, decisions. You know, what I mean, towards it. Just advising the government on things. Scrap that. Fuck all that. We're just gonna do it ourselves. We're gonna we're gonna hold ourselves accountable because famously Tory governments um, hold themselves accountable. Um, yeah, just, just you know, didn't you know? They always do that. Anyway, 
Shamim Ahmad, uh, the chief executive of Public Law Project, said, quote, AI comes with tremendous potential for social good, for instance. We can make things more efficient, but we cannot ignore, ignore the serious risks. Without urgent action, we could sleepwalk into a situation where opaque automated systems are regularly, possibly unlawfully, used in life-altering ways and where people will not be able to seek redress when those processes go wrong, unquote. Martin Oswald, uh, a professor in law at Northumbria University uh, and a former member of the Government Advisory Board on Data Ethics, a former, uh, quote, there is a lack of consistency and transparency in the way that AI is being used in the public sector. A lot of these tools will affect many people in their everyday lives, for example, those who claim benefits, but people don't understand why they are being used and don't have the opportunity to challenge them, unquote. Sunak will gather heads of state next week at Bletchley Park for an international summit on AI safety. Yeah, that's, I, I don't know, I just find it ironic that we're, have, we're talking about this and Sunak is hosting an international summit on AI safety. It's, it's very funny, very amusing. The summit which Downing Street hopes will set the terms for AI development around the world for years to come will focus specifically on the potential threat opposed to all of humanity uh, by advanced algorithmic models. For years, however, civil servants have been relying on less sophisticated algorithmic tools to help make a range of decisions about people's daily lives. In some cases, the tools are simple and transparent, such as electronic passport gates or number plate recognition cameras, both of which use a visual recognition software powered by AI. In other cases, however, this software is more powerful and less obvious to those who are affected by it. The Cabinet Office recently launched an algorithmic transparency reporting standard, unquote, which encourages departments and police authorities to voluntarily disclose where they use AI to make uh, to help make decisions which could have a material impact on the general public. Six organisations have listed projects under the new transparency standard. The Guardian examined these those projects as well as a separate database compiled by a public law project. Guardian then issued freedom of information requests to every uh, government department and police authority in the UK to build fuller picture of where AI is currently making decisions which affect people's lives. The results show that at least eight Whitehall departments use AI in one way or another, some far more heavily than others. The NHS has used AI in a number of contexts, including during the COVID pandemic, when officials use it to help identify at-risk patients who should be advised to shield. The Home Office said it used AI for e-gates to read passports airports, to help with the submission of passport applications, and in the department's sham marriage triage tool, uh, which flags potential fake marriages for further investigation. An internal Home Office evaluation seen by The Guardian shows the tool disproportionately flags up uh, people from Albania, Greece, Romania and Bulgaria. The DWP, meanwhile, has an integrated risk and intelligence service, uh, which uses an algorithm to help detect fraud and an error among uh, benefit claimants. Uh, Labour MP Kate Ossamore uh, believes uh, the use of this algorithm may have contributed to dozens of Bulgarians suddenly having their benefits suspended in recent years after they were falsely flagged as making potentially fraudulent claims. The DWP insists the algorithm does not take nationality into account. A spokesperson added, quote, We are cracking down on those who try to exploit the system and shamelessly steal from those uh, most in need as we continue our drive to save the taxpayer 1.3 billion next year. It's all about saving the money, you know what I mean? Gotta save the money and not just, you know, 
not give Israel money? Anyway, not, not talking about that. Um, neither the DWP nor the Home Office would give details on how the automated processes uh, work, but both have said uh, the processes uh, they use are fair because the final decisions are made by people. Many experts worry, however, that bias algorithms will lead to biased final, uh, final decisions because officials can only review the cases flagged to them and often have limited time to do so. Yeah, if it's, um, if these algorithms are opaque and people can't, you know, fathom what the fuck the algorithm even is and what they're actually, you know, doing with that information, doing with the information given to them, fed to them, um, how the fuck are they making the final decisions made by people shtick? Like, the, the, no, no, you're, st- you're making decisions heavily influenced by AI. So, how is that going to work on that front? That doesn't make no fucking sense. Um, but yeah, man, just just great, just great to see um, the just great to see the government uh, modernizing. And uh, <laughs> I can't I can't keep that with a straight face. Fuck this government, honestly. Jesus Christ. So it's time for a long read, and this one is heading over to ProPublica uh, for a racist Harvard scientist commissioned photos of enslaved people. One possible descendant wants to reclaim their story. It's written by Jennifer Berry Hawes and dropped on October the 9th, 2023. With that said, let's jump right in. The woman turned her car onto the campus of Harvard University, a place she had never been, and parked near a museum renowned for its invaluable cultural artifacts. On that day in 2010, Tamara Lanier did not come to see ancient Mayan murals or African masks. She arrived to view historic photographs of enslaved people she had recently come to believe were her own ancestors. Though excited, she steeled herself. She had seen the images online, she had felt gripped by the steely gaze of a man named Renty, and she had grieved for his daughter, a young woman named Delia, seated with the top of her dress unbuttoned, pulled down and bunched in her lap. Tears blurred her eyes. Photography was a fairly new technology back in 1850 when a group of white men, a thousand miles away from Cambridge, Massachusetts, conspired with a famous Harvard professor to use it. Louis Agassiz, a pioneer of natural science, had travelled to South Carolina hoping to prove that different races did not share a common origin, a theory called polygenesis. To aid his effort, the men had selected seven black people, mostly from nearby plantations, and hauled them to a posh photo studio in downtown Columbia. Someone forced C7 to partly or fully undress before a camera. A photographer then captured them from the front, side and back, like the specimens Agassiz considered them to be. Now, 173 years later, Harvard's Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology holds within its vast collection the resulting 15 images, a kind of early photograph called daguerreotypes. They are among the oldest known photographs of enslaved people in America. When Lanier entered the Peabody that day, after driving for two hours from her home in Connecticut, she clutched a document she prepared for Harvard in hopes its experts might review it with her. 
It detailed the genealogy research she thought could demonstrate her ancestral ties to Renty and Delia. A white woman who would oversee her visit greeted her in what Lanier recalled as a professional but distant tone. Lanier signed a standard legal form that stated if she was allowed to examine anything in the museum's archives, she would need permission to publish any part of it. Then she relinquished her purse and cell phone and anything in her pockets. She had come expecting to feel welcome as a potential descendant. A long-time probation officer, she instead felt like she was entering a prison. The experience left her shaken. Over the next nine years, leading up to a 2019 lawsuit against Harvard to gain control of the photographs, Lanier grew increasingly offended by its dominion over them. As she attempted to get Harvard to engage with her, she grappled with nausea and insomnia. She found it outrageous that the institution whose celebrated employee prompted the taking of the pictures controls the stories of the people he subjected to such degradation. Harvard has ruled over them with an iron fist, Linnea said, but this ugly history will always be in the way of anything they try to do with these images. Yet she has little recourse. Last year, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court agreed with a lower court that had dismissed Lanier's claim to ownership of the photos. The justices ruled in part that no legal avenue allows descendants to obtain possession of artifacts that resulted from their ancestors' enslavement. The court did allow her to pursue an emotional distress action in which she accuses Harvard of, quote, publicly and cavalierly dismissing her claim of an ancestral connection to Renty and Delia, unquote. Harvard denies this claim and that she has proven she is a lineal descendant. That case is pending. As Justice Elspeth Seifer noted during all arguments, quote, There are systems in place for repatriating remains for Native Americans and their objects. We unfortunately don't have something in place through Congress to do that for African Americans and descendants, unquote. Seifer was referring to the 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, ProPublica has been investigating the failure of federally funded museums, including the Peabody, to repatriate their holdings of Native American remains and artifacts under the law. Among other things, NAGPRA allows lineal descendants of Native people who own certain objects to pursue their return. But enslaved ancestors couldn't own property. They were the property. And because they were treated as property, exhuming enough records to clearly connect generations of enslaved ancestors also borders on the impossible, as Lanier has discovered during her 13-year odyssey. But more is at stake than who gets to claim quote-unquote ownership, a fraught concept in a battle over coerced pictures taken of captive people. Lanier's ultimate goal is not to possess the images for herself, but to reclaim a story. She sees revealing the brutality of the imagery and the humanity of the subjects as being important to the broader understanding of the nation's legacy of slavery as the images themselves. Quote, She is involved in a conversation that goes to many broader issues of African-American empowerment and disempowerment in the telling of their own story, said Michael Blakey, a bioarchaeologist and professor at the College of William and Mary and co-chair of the Commission for the Ethical Treatment of Human Remains of the American Anthropological Association. Linnea's quest is about finding a rifle steward to make decisions over the handling of the photographs and how they are presented. She has a new potential home in mind, one that she feels would finally set the people captured in them free. 
Before she'd ever heard of the daguerreotypes, Lanier had learned from her mother about the rentees of her family. Matty Thompson-Lanier was born in the 1920s to sharecropper parents in rural Mount Meigs, Alabama, where she heard stories handed down by her grandfather, a cotton farmer born into slavery in South Carolina. His name was Rentee Thompson, and he hailed from a line of enslaved men named Rentee. They began with an African-born man called Papa Rentee, who held a place of special reverence to the family in part because he had taught himself to read English and then taught others at great personal risk. Teaching enslaved people to write was illegal. Matty absorbed her grandfather's oral history with determination that the legacy of Papa Renti and the generations that followed him not be forgotten. Throughout the Montgomery bus boycott, her brother Renti, who went by Willie, walked to his plumber job every day. For long after, he kept the worn and broken shoes with pride, calling them his civil rights shoes. Matty treasured those stories. As she lay dying in 2010, she grew insistent with her daughter, I want you to write this down. Lanier agreed. With the younger of her two daughters in college and retirement from her job as a chief probation officer on the horizon, she figured that she'd soon have more time to preserve this oral history. In reality, she had no idea of all that her promise would entail. Shortly after her mother's death, Lanier stopped by a sandwich shop she frequented and mentioned to its owner the promise she had made and the man called Papa Renti. When Lanier returned another day, the shop owner beamed. I found your Papa Renti on the internet. He emailed her a link, which she opened at home that night. Staring back in the daguerreotypes was Renti, who appeared to be about 70 at the time. She felt her eyes lock on his. I knew in my heart that this was the man I'd heard about for so many years, said Lanier, who's now 60. The shop owner had sent her two links. The second one pulled up a story that mentioned Louis Agassiz. Among the most acclaimed scientists of his time, Agassiz founded Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology and was the first scientist to hypothesize a global ice age. But Lanier also read that after encountering black hotel workers one day, the Swiss-born professor had written to his mother that he, quote, experienced pity at the sight of this degraded and degenerate race, unquote, and found it, quote, impossible for me to reprocess the feeling that they are not of the same blood as us, unquote. In early 1850, Agassiz travelled south to address a scientific conference in Charleston, where he voiced support for polygenesis. Then he headed inland past vast cotton plantations towards South Carolina's capital city of Columbia. His cohorts there included Robert Gibbs, a paleontologist and physician to the wealthy plantation operators who facilitated Agassiz's field research. The seven enslaved people soon faced a camera. All five men were African-born, along with Renty and Delia were Jack and his daughter Drainer. Other men were Alfred, Fasina and Jim. It is unclear whether Agassiz directed the photography in person, but a few months later he wrote in the Christian Examiner that he had recently, quote, examined closely many native Africans belonging to different tribes, unquote. As she read, Lanier grew convinced these were the pictures of her own family members. Her family called Papa Renti the black African because he was African-born, and although Lanier's mother grew up in Alabama, Renti Thompson, uh, Lanier's great-grandfather, was born in South Carolina. Matty Thompson, Lanier, called one branch of their family the Carolina Geechees. How many men named Renty, African-born, were held in bondage at the time in South Carolina? Likely not many. Renty wasn't an especially common name in slave inventories, 
and a dwindling number of African-born captives remained alive at the time given four decades have passed since Congress banned the importation of enslaved people. This has to be the same man, Lanier thought. She set out to prove it. In 1855, Frederick Douglass lamented how little he knew of his parents of the time of his birth. Genealogical trees do not flourish among slaves, he wrote. No enslaved person he'd ever met could relay a birthday. Life and law routinely tore fathers from children. Mothers mark births by seasons and harvests too soon forgotten. They keep no family records with marriages, births and deaths, Douglas wrote. African Americans researching ancestors today often hit an archival black hole before the end of the Civil War in 1865. The 1870 federal census is the first one that even records all formerly enslaved people with their names. Despite having no experience searching archives, Lanier began to scour census, death and probate records. For 13 years now, she has worked to craft a narrative about her lineage. It fills three ring binders, Google and Word documents, timelines and spreadsheets. When I talk about a jigsaw puzzle from hell, she said, that's what it's been like. Lanier was luckier than most. Her mother had passed on a fairly detailed oral history, and despite the disturbing nature of the daguerreotypes, they yielded important clues. Gibbs had jotted onto scraps of paper a few words about each person photographed. Inside one velvet-lined leather case about the size of a cell phone, a frame holds a photograph of Renty in profile. The note affixed to the lining facing it reads, quote, Renty, Congo, unquote. Below that, Gibbs added B.F. Taylor Esquire, Columbia SC. In fact, it appeared that four of the seven people photographed, Renty, Delia, Jack and Drainer, were associated with B.F. Taylor. Knowing who enslaved them would be hugely helpful because morsels of details about human property linger among the preserved letters, receipts and estate records kept by white elites. Then they easily identified B.F. Taylor. He was Benjamin Franklin Taylor, part of a family of Columbia-area plantation owners who bore titles like Colonel and Governor. Indeed, the names Renty and Delia showed up on several of the Taylor's slave inventories, which were filed with their probate records. Although these handwritten lists yielded only captive people's first names and dollar values, they provided linear glimpses into their locations and the names of family and friends around them. One such inventory, filed after the 1833 death of Benjamin Taylor's father, Colonel Thomas Taylor, became a backbone of Linnea's research because it listed two men named Renty and grouped people by family units. One Renty headed a group of seven who included Delia. The other man, called Big Renty, was listed above two people. Nothing in the inventory obviously links the two family units. They don't appear near each other on the page, but another Taylor document named a person from each group as siblings, bolstering Lanier's view that they were, in fact, one family. She posits that Big Renty is her Papa Renty, evidenced by the black family tradition of referring to a father whose son shares his name as Big Jim or Big George. She contends the two Rentys in the inventory are father and son, her Papa Renty and his son Renty Taylor, the name of Renty Thompson's father. Lanier still doesn't know... How Renty Thompson got his last name, he might have been sold to a Thompson or as a freedman chosen the surname. Someone else on the Taylor inventory listed with a separate family unit also called her I, a person named Tenor. Renty Thompson's mother was named Tenor Taylor. Was it mere coincidence? 
Lanier found little to connect Renty Taylor, her great-great-grandfather, to Alabama, but Tanner Taylor, her great-great-grandmother, clearly was born in South Carolina and moved at some point to Mount Meigs, Alabama, a rural area where she lived and died, as did Renty Thompson. Also became clear, Benjamin Taylor and his media family enslaved several women with variations of the name Tanner, and when a slew of Taylor's brothers and nephews left Columbia to extend their plantation riches, where did they move? Mount Meigs, Alabama. One of them bought Chantilly Plantation in the Pike Road area near where Lanier's family later lived. The Taylors surely brought with them the people they kept in bondage. And that could explain why, as Lanier's mother had said, Tenor Taylor travelled back and forth between South Carolina and Alabama to visit loved ones after she was freed. But making a definitive case about the connections between all of these people is difficult without more documentation. Adequate records might not even exist. Greg Hasimovich, an author and English professor, has spent more than a decade researching the seven people in the daguerreotypes and contributed a chapter to a 2020 book of scholars' essays about them. He described, quote, stalking the vapory trail, unquote, left by all seven. The people behind the images embody, to my mind, many histories of the American experience. Only this time a history that white Americans willfully try to erase and still try to bury, said Hesimovich, who teaches at Furman University northwest of Columbia and is finishing work on a book about the seven during a year-long fellowship at Harvard. The research continues, although for Lanier it is not only an academic pursuit. So many people like me are out there trying to piece their families back together, she said. There is always this yearning. You're driven to keep digging and keep searching. After 1865, a paper trail begins to illuminate the lives of newly free people. The 1870 census shows an 86-year-old man named Renty living in Columbia with people whose names also appeared on Benjamin Taylor's slave inventory. This Renty was African-born, a distinct rarity by then. It likely means that the man whose visage has come to define the daguerreotypes lived to experience freedom again. Lanier's Odyssey is a case study for scholars and lawmakers who have called on Congress to adopt protections akin to NAGPRA that would provide African Americans a path to seek repatriation. An AGPRA, if you will. Where is the same consideration for descendants of American chattel slavery? Lanier asked. If she'd had a framework to pursue control of the daguerreotypes, perhaps she and Harvard might have avoided ongoing litigation and years of public conflict. Giving museums and communities no legal tools, no set of processes to navigate these problems leaves everyone short-change, said Chip Colwell, an anthropologist who wrote the book Plundered Skulls and Stolen Spirits Inside the Fight to Reclaim Native America's Culture in 2021. He co-authored a call for an AGPRA in Nature magazine. But because enslaved people faced a particular degree and type of harm, an AGPRA would need substantial differences from its namesake. For instance, tribal governments often make repatriation claims under NAGPRA by citing their ties to the lands the ancestral remains and items were taken from. That wouldn't work for African Americans, whose enslaved ancestors were typically stripped of such basic rights as owning land. The abject denial of humanhood and all of the rights that come with that during this period does make it incredibly different, said Tony Matthews, president and CEO of the International African Museum in Charleston, which has a genealogy centre. 
The challenge is you're dealing with the history of a people who are deliberately mishmashed together, but also constantly separated. Despite the difficulty that has created for descendants researching their family histories, Harvard has countered Lanier's efforts largely by asserting that she hasn't proven a direct link to Renty or Delia. Harvard spokesperson Nicole Ruhrer told ProPublica that experts within the university and one outside have examined Lanier's claims of lineage, quote, and we have not been able to find a connection between Miss Lanier and the individuals in the daguerreotypes, unquote. Museums, she added, cannot just accept a face value, a person's claim of lineage to items in a collection, especially when, as in Lanier's case, the person has sued to gain control of the items as a direct descendant. Harvard, of course, recognises that there are practical limitations that encumber exhaustive genealogical research related to African-American lived experiences, Rura said in an email. But at the same time, educational institutions and museums obviously cannot automatically accept claims of ancestry. Lanier wondered how the university examined her evidence of lineage, which she insisted is strong given nobody from Harvard had sat down with her to review her ongoing research. Rira said Harvard invited Lanier to share her additional findings multiple times. To Lanier, Harvard officials' treatment of her is indicative of the problem she is pointing out. Rather than actively engage with her as even a potential descendant, she contends they have preferred their own narrative told by people of their choosing. Beyond the academic arrogance is just a denial of Renty and Delia's basic humanity, their history, their legacy, she said is a perfect example of cultural appropriation. Even if Lanier cannot definitively prove she is their direct descendant, she would have a stronger case if the threshold was only that she had to prove she is related to the community of people who were enslaved by the tailors. Instead of emphasising direct descendants seeking repatriation, an AGPRA would need to rely more on such quote-unquote descendant communities, Blakey said. He pointed to a national rubric on best practices that defines these communities as the families of people enslaved at a certain site or a surrounding region, or people who feel connected regardless of a proven genealogical tie. That community piece, who it is, what sort of authority the lineal descendants have compared to people who claim to be historical, social, spiritual descendants, that's something we are going to have to work out as a society, said Rachel Watkins, a biocultural anthropologist and department chair at American University. Many museums don't even know what human remains and objects they possess related to African Americans because they kept such poor records regarding people they viewed as research objects. No central repository tracks them either. An AGPRA could require the museums review their collections and then publicly report what they have, allowing for more accountability. NAGPRA requires federal agencies and museums to do just that for human remains and items that were taken from Native American graves. As institutions have completed these inventories, sometimes while also embarking on racial reckonings, they have reported finding remains and items connected to African Americans as well. In 2021, Harvard's then-president Lawrence S. Bacow issued a stunning announcement. Harvard had catalogued the remains of more than 22,000 human beings in its collections. They included the remains of 15 people of African descent who might have been enslaved. This number has since grown to 90. These individuals represent a chapter in our history that we must confront, Bacow wrote. 
He apologised for, quote, Harvard's role in collection practices that placed the academic enterprise above respect for the dead and human decency, unquote. In March, Lanier stood gazing at the waters where a wharf once reached into Charleston Harbour to greet a glut of slave ships. Beneath her feet lay an artist's carvings of the outlines of bodies resembling captives stuffed into those vessels' hulls. It is possible that some or all of the five African-born men subject to the photography arrived into enslavement here. Lanier turned away to head inside a new 150,000 square foot homage to the Black Experience, the International African American Museum, opened in June. But Lanier was getting a sneak peek with faculty from the College of Charleston Center for the Study of Slavery. In a few hours, she would give a talk at the college about her journey. She never imagined the promise she made to her mother would lead to people across the country seeking out her story, and those of Renty and Delia. A movement dubbed Free Renty had sprung up around her quest. Students at Harvard had backed her. So had 43 of Louis Agassiz's descendants who signed a letter supporting her efforts. In 2019, two had even marched with her to the president's office to hand deliver a copy. Now she walked up the wide front steps to this grand new museum in the state where Renty and Delia had lived and probably died. Wandering among its galleries, she examined shackles that once held people in bondage, tools that black midwives used to birth new life, and baskets woven by enslaved women who brought the skill from their homes in West Africa. She paused in one room to read walls filled with people's first names like so many she had seen on slave inventories during her research. Maybe Harvard should fund the caring for the daguerreotypes here, she mused bringing the images to South Carolina to a first-voice institution like this one, an African-American-led museum telling African-American stories, would mark what Lanier described as, quote, a homecoming, unquote. Three months later, on July 1st, Harvard welcomed its first black president, Claudine Gay, professor of African and African-American studies, is the daughter of Haitian immigrants. Following her selection, ProPublica asked leaders at Harvard and the IAAM what they thought of Lanier's idea of transferring the images to Charleston. Rura, Harvard's spokesperson, didn't address the IAAM specifically, but also didn't dismiss the idea. She wrote to ProPublica that, quote, Is this Harvard that has long suggested placing the daguerreotypes, all 15 of them, in another institution that would allow them to be more accessible to a broader segment of the public, to be understood in an appropriate historical context, and to tell the stories of the enslaved individuals they depict. She added, It is difficult to arrange for such a transfer while the litigation is pending. Matthews, the IAAM's president, said the museum is equipped to store the images, which are housed at Harvard in custom-made cases in a facility with controlled temperature and humidity. Matthews added that she would welcome a conversation about moving them to her museum, particularly if approached by the holding institution and a descendant. It definitely fits within our collection philosophy, she said. South Carolina is ground zero for a lot of this. The notion of a homecoming, she added, resonated with her. After leaving Charleston, Lanier continued to mull that word too. It gave her a sense of welcome and comfort. She envisioned a celebration for the daguerreotypes akin to the black funeral tradition of a homegoing, when loved ones cherish and exalt those who have passed and set their spirits free.
So to recap, that was a racist Harvard scientist commissioned photos of the saved people. One possible descendant wants to reclaim their story. Written by Jennifer Berry Hawes via ProPublica. And to finish, just a few words on that from my side. I feel um, you know something that I've always been fascinated by is just how much effort it takes for um, African Americans to actually get um actually get uh you know the the, the the get their lineage you know just get any information on their lineage um it is like it said in the uh, like I said in the long read an extremely hard task uh, for a lot of uh, a lot of people uh, african americans living today um even if they choose to do so obvious uh, of course um it's a very hard um subject um and a very hard task um to do individually um, but yeah, I do hope that um, it goes to the IAAM. I hope the um, I hope the story is told in the light it's supposed to be told, instead of just being held in a box. <laughs> you know, albeit a very nice box, a bespoke box, is a uh, temperature controlled and all, and humidity controlled and all that. Um, but yeah, I do feel you know these daguerreotypes um, are important. I think you know um, as a you know, a, a amateur photography geek. Um, you know, it's it's great to have. Well, not great. It's 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 important to um, take note of these early photos, and what what is more important, have that story of how the daguerreotypes even came about. You know, not just the fact that they they're daguerreotypes, which are obviously are very, you know, increasingly rare to find these days, uh, since you know they're one of the first iterations of pho- of photography. Um, but, you know, the story is important, the story is extremely important, and I feel, you know, it definitely should be told in a, in a very particular light, and, um, obviously Harvard's, um, while they understand that, um, how they came about was out of, um, you know, out of, uh, bad faith means, um, and just, um, you know, <laughs> I'm actually uh, listening to an audio book about the N word and um, you know how the language of the N word has uh, you know affected American history. And um, there's two chapters, um, part one of part two, and it's called Niggerology, and uh, it's basically accounting the pseudoscience, um, you know, of like, you know stuff like the bell curve and stuff like that. Um, and uh, you know, it reminds me of this in some ways of just like um, uh, of people. Uh, of people just taking for taking the word of you know quote unquote academics at the time going like you know oh the, these 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 niggers right here are the you know they're 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 inferior um, and you know here's some quote unquote science to back that up and uh, you know obviously um, the the scientists involved in this one are clearly driven by quote unquote niggerology. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a very fascinating subject, and um, I do hope Miss Lanier gets the um, gets what uh, she wants on this front, um, full support on that front, and uh, yeah, interesting story overall. So with that said, ladies and gentlemen, shall leave it there for the two hundred fiftieth time. <laughs> I've a child tone and it's been what's good. Into music has been too much by Vanilla. Into music was Charismatic by Nappy High, of course, as always, and also sometimes seen by Tesk for the long read interlude. You can find. Both there, but all three of those links in the full show notes, as well as chill uh, hot music affects it a bit to use, of course, uh, for the other two songs. Um, and with that said, we shall leave it there. Hope you'll have a good week. I'm sure it's trying to do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.